Welcome to AASHTO Resource Q&A. We're taking time to discuss construction materials, testing, and inspection with people in the know. From exploring testing problems and solutions to laboratory best practices and quality management, we're covering topics important to you. Welcome to AASHTO Resource Q&A. I'm Kim Swanson. We are without Brian Johnson today, but we are going to soldier on and we're talking today about the BAC and PGB samples in the Proficiency Sample Program. So with us today, we have John Molusky, the manager of the Proficiency Sample Program. Welcome, John. Good morning, Kim. We also have Ryan LeQuay, the manager for laboratory testing and... Close enough. <laughs> I'll take it. It's progress. <laughs> laboratory no, testing manager. I had it and then I messed it up. <laughs> So sorry about that, Ryan. I'm right. no better than Brian in that <laughs> regards, but thank you for being here. We also have Joe Williams, Senior Quality Analyst with the AASHTO Accreditation Program. Welcome, Joe. Yeah, thanks, Kim. I, I manage nothing. <laughs> it's okay. You have a shorter title, so I was able to recall that better. So again, my apologies, Ryan. So Let's dive into the insights. Let's start with BAC samples. What can you share? Anything different with the sample? So yeah, this sample actually kind of surprised us a little bit. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to defer to Ryan right away. You yeah. can kind of talk about what we saw in the uh, homogeneity and stability for this round and let you roll. Sure. So whenever we have a sample, we do in-house testing before you know, we ship it out to everybody. We actually caught one of our samples as being an outlier. So we went back and checked what we thought was you know other samples in that general area those ones passed through so i thought maybe there might be just one off turns out that wasn't the case we ended up having more of an issue than, than expected but we did see it coming out and it was more impactful than we thought it was going to be what was the actual issue that you noticed give a little bit more background we try to order the liquid asphalt about eight months in advance of when we're going to use it we order about 20, 25 drums, somewhere in that range, based on what we need for participation. And then the proficiency sample program crew will package it into the quart cans, pint cans, gallon cans, you know, basically as in advance for any of the samples that we need. Well, while they're going through those processes, Ryan and I create uh, basically like an array table of where to pull the samples from to make sure that when we're checking these samples for homogeneity, we cover every single round or scope or scheme, however you want to call it. You know, so we went ahead and we did that and the crew poured the material in December for basically all of 2023, with the exception of the PGB samples. Since we're using a modified product for that, those are considered separate and we order that material in a different uh, lot. But yeah, this one was just kind of a, a little bit weird. We did our normal protocol and we saw that one anomaly. Ryan ran a Q yeah. test to remove it failed the Q test, so we kicked it out. And I guess what I'm gonna say is when we pulled our numbers, we went back to a similar time and date when more of those cans in that area of the pull would have been tested. And we pulled another can and it passed. So we thought it may have been something related to our testing. We just- Another two cans even. But yeah, so when I ran through the testing, all of our samples had a gravity of 1.029 or 1.030, except for this one sample that had a gravity of 1.034, which in the scheme of things doesn't seem significant, but it is statistically significant enough that it was an outlier for us. What was the data that you were getting back from participants? What did you see in that? Basically, we didn't see too much of an issue 
with anything heavily related to viscosity, we did not see any issue with. Yes, there was a slight variation between the averages of sample A and sample B, or 271 and 272, but the metrics were still applicable. And when we looked at the data analysis and analyzed everything and ran our verification for those types of test properties, the sample checked out fine. We didn't see any issue. The data was still normally distributed. But when we looked at things like kinematic and absolute viscosity, that's where we saw the the issue. There was a, a major difference in the averages for viscosity. The kinematic average for 271 was around 450. And the same value for sample 272 in kinematic viscosity was 524 roughly 75 centistokes difference between the two. And that was enough to show a variation between the two samples. The kind of weird part is that when that, the random, our random uh, selection of samples, we must have hit dead in the middle when that can was shown because it appears that all of 271 was the same and all of 272 except for like 20 cans. So yeah. 20 cans of 272 was identical to 271. So it was just like, it, it actually would have probably worked out if all of the cans from 272 would have have been, I don't know if you want to call it the deviation, would have been the other material <laughs> or whatever <laughs> happened with it. So we're not quite sure how it worked out, but it was enough of a difference where we saw a bimodal distribution for the kinematic and absolute viscosity test and we had to suppress it. Going over to the accreditation side, so you suppress the ratings. What have you seen on that side of things, Joe? Yeah, that's actually interesting because we did have a situation come up with that. And it was interesting to hear John talk about it where we had a laboratory that was actually previously suspended for T201. And when a laboratory is suspended, we then take a look at their ratings in the following round to see how they do. That was suppressed. We are going to reinstate that laboratory based on just the 271 data. We're basically just going to plug in what they got, what the average was, and the standard deviation for 271. But since uh, the 272 data, as John mentioned, is is sort of wacky there, we're we're not paying any attention to that. That that was just a one-off case for us. Suppressed ratings don't have anything to do with previous ratings. So if a laboratory received low ratings or didn't submit data on the previous sample, a suppressed rating won't impact them this time around. In fact, for, for BAC in total, we only had one laboratory suspension for a test standard and it wasn't 201 or 202. So there's not a huge impact there, but there was one interesting case where, where we did have to take a closer look at it for a lab. That is interesting. So for Ryan and John, what are your kind of lessons learned around this situation? Or what are you doing to kind of minimize the chances of this happening in the future? We're kind of at a loss as to what really happened. You know, it would be different if we saw the homogeneity issue throughout all of the samples that we tested. But it was one sample out of a specific portion of one of those 25 drums that we tested. And it wasn't like it was you know, at the beginning of our homogeneity polar at the very end, it was about, if I remember Ryan, roughly like two thirds of the way through or in the middle. So we had some, you know, material in advance that tested out great Then this one sample. And then the materials that were tested out thereafter were all right in line. So we, like I said, we thought it might've been on us. It was on our own as for a, a testing error. That's why we Q tested it, found out it was a variant through the can out 
and sampled. I think Ryan, you said you sampled two more, and that's correct. We received satisfactory readings, so we thought it just might have been a testing situation on our end. You know, we don't know if it was if it was an issue with something coming from the supplier. We obviously can't pinpoint it, or if it was an issue with our sample handling when it got here. But it was just interesting that it was such an isolated incident and it appeared to only affect about 70 to 100 cans so just something so small and weird i mean i think the proficiency sample crew poured i'm gonna probably say 2,000 to 3,000 cans so for this one (laughs) one can to pop up and you know the amount of other tests that we ran on it, we're, we're surprised that the BAC results came out like this, but at least we tried to do our best to address it so there was no effect on the participants and they didn't see any any effect with their accreditation. How many labs are accredited for viscosity graded asphalt cement tests, Joe? So we can kind of get an idea of the, the scope of the I sample. I don't know, Kim. I thought we just looked that up. Did we not? No? No, we no. Looked we up. looked at accredited labs enrolled in the program accredited for any of the tests. And that any was 247, tests. we said. 246, okay. yeah. 246. But for kinematic and absolute. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I thought we had discussed Oh, you that, totally though. put him on the spot. I did. I thought it was something we already discussed. It's so like Brian's here. Kim's harnessing her inner Brian. Let's ask <laughs> questions that no one's even reasonably prepared to answer or some number that's so specific. <laughs> oh. so, so for either designation, Astro or ASTM, so that's T201, T202, D2170 or D2171, there are 84 laboratories accredited in our program for one of those test standards. You said there was 260 46. something? 246 laboratories accredited in that general. would require participation in, in BAC. It's really not that big of a, a group of people or laboratories that were impacted by this in the grand scheme of things. Not necessarily not impacted because, you know, they, they might still look at their data and say, mm. you know, what's why are these values so different? Because even even though there are two samples, they're usually pretty close. So th- there may be some impact as far as a, a questioning of their data, but as far as an, an accreditation impact, no, there's no, there's nobody impacted. The other interesting thing, and I, I had a little bit of a talk with Brian a few weeks ago about this. One thing that was really different with the viscosity test was the standard deviation for both kinematic and absolute. Traditionally, we see a, a smaller standard deviation, usually single digits, maybe uh, maybe double digits, like low teens. But I think these were in the 20s and 30s. So the 1S mm-hmm. value was at least two to two and a half times larger than what we see. And that was for both 271 and 272. It wasn't like it was isolated to just one of the sides in the in the pair. So that's you know one other weird situation that took place. I mean, maybe that was was born from those you know the 10 or 12 or 15 or cans or however many they were uh, where the samples were identical so so maybe that's that's where that came from but it was just interesting to see how just that little bit made such a difference with the variation in the in the two materials and the averages yeah was there any other interesting or anomaly kind of things that are happening with the samples or the analysis of the samples I think for BAC, for viscosity graded for this round, that was pretty much it. The rest of the rounds seemed to be very normal, even though it's apparent that we had uh, material that was slightly vary of slight variation between the two. I don't know how how relevant this is, but I spent a week at the National Transportation Product and Evaluation Program meeting 
through Ashto. I sat in on a session about binder suppliers, and there was a discussion about how the materials produced and manufactured. And it, it gave me a little bit more insight on the attempt of the process control that those big facilities have to navigate and manage. So it was good to hear that, but it gave me a little bit more insight about how we need to be diligent when we order material and when we process material and, and you know do our best to try to ensure that we're sending those homogenized materials out the door. So it, it, it was... It was definitely interesting. It, it, there are a lot more hurdles than one would think when it comes to coordinating the processing and preparation of materials like that on the grand scheme of things for a refinery or terminal. So definitely interesting, but I could see how some of these situations that we encounter can occur just because of the mass and scale of the facilities and what they're doing there. So it's interesting. But like I said, we're going to do our best to try to minimize any kind of issue like this, make sure that we're blending appropriately and mixing and stirring and heating and and trying to be as diligent as we can. Hopefully this this is one of those things that doesn't happen for years from now. And uh, unless we decide to design to do something like that, but we'll design it so it's effective. <laughs> yeah, not just trying to throw curveballs at laboratories for no right. reason. <laughs> yeah, we definitely don't do that. No. So I just noticed this because of the analysis because I also included the specific gravity numbers that we got in our in-house testing. John, do you have to notice what those numbers were? I did not. For 272, the grand average is 1034. The outlier would have matched up. All the rest of our results were lower, as is tradition with our in-house testing. With our unknown bias? Yeah, for uh, the past seven years now, we have been below average on our gravity testing. We don't know why. We've tried every possible, you know, looking into it, checking our equipment, checking our methodology, checking our environmental controls. We can't figure out why we're below average, but we are. It's not even just one person. It's Ryan, myself, and one of the other quality analysts who does asphalt testing. So the three of us are consistently low. Yes. We even thought it might have been a spreadsheet issue when we're doing our calcs. We have checked everything, but... Yep. Different technometers, different water, different rooms for cooling, different ovens for heating, everything. We have a bias to be below the grand average as it relates to the data. So it's interesting. So I have a question, topic adjacent, but John, why is viscosity graded asphalt cement labeled BAC in our things? Because the rest of the acronyms and letters kind of make sense with what the name of the sample is. But what's up with BAC for viscosity graded asphalt cement? Yeah, so this is kind of just, uh, I guess old habits die hard for the proficiency sample crew. The sample was originally called bituminous asphalt cement. Wasn't set as to be a specific grade. And then I believe once the viscosity test got in, we changed the name to viscosity graded asphalt, but never changed the acronym. So it's something that we could probably do extremely easily. And I think the crew even labels every can viscosity graded. The labels say viscosity graded, but the other stuff says bituminous, and bituminous is not the preferred language anymore. It should be asphalt, so at some point we'll get around to it. That's uh, that's probably low-hanging fruit that we should really take care of. <laughs> As I'm looking, I'm like, I can make that change I, on the website, think, but, you know, half of that change right now. But I think, um, I think you can take care of most of that, Kim. Thanks. I probably can. <laughs> I'm just always going like, why is this, like, because I think it's always been... Since I've been here, viscosity graded asphalt cement, but yet the acronym was BAC, and I was confused from the beginning, and I just never asked why. 
Yeah. There, so see, there you go. You have the power. I have. Well, I mean, not all of the power. I have a lot of that power. Like but not 95% all of, the power. of the power. Yes. <laughs> I can't act on that power, though, without without approval. I can't just go make changes. Pretty sure you can if the, if the name's already been changed. <laughs> We'll see. Our listeners to this will see, like, oh, go to the website, see if Kim made that change or not. Is there anything else that I didn't ask that, or Brian would have asked about the viscosity graded asphalt cement samples? Yeah, let's and not the, go down that rabbit hole. We'll move on to the performance graded asphalt binder samples or PGB samples. And the most recent ones were, again, 271 and 272. So what was going on there? Anything new or interesting with the PGB samples this time, John? So this year was our first year where uh, we kind of changed the material a little bit. We had been out of tradition, if you want to call it that. We were sending laboratories unmodified products, you know, typically 64s, PG64s or PG70s for every spring sample. And then every fall was the polymer modified material. Well, we've decided to go away from that traditional route, and we are going to just start sending different kinds of material for every round. So we won't specifically identify that the spring is unmodified and the fall is modified. We are going to just send various performance grades you know, each time, whether they're a polymer modified or PPA modified or unmodified. So it was our first time doing that. Obviously, nothing really changed substantially other than just that protocol of us having to order a modified product in the in the late fall for pouring for the spring. But as it relates to the round, very, very normal standard round averages were consistent. Standard deviations were consistent from previous rounds. So we didn't see anything that was any any kind of weird anomaly. It was it was nice, clean round analysis went extremely well. You know, we had our typical uh, MSCR issue, which we see basically every round that we do this. We suppressed line item number 18 in the round, which was the percent difference of non-recoverable creep compliance or the difference in JNR due to a bimodal distribution. I'm actually working through a little bit of a back-end analysis now to determine what the issue was. The consistent issue has been variation between the DSR manufacturers and software. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens as I navigate through, through that sidebar analysis. Joe, was there any interesting accreditation insights? No, this is one of our lighter sample types as far as accreditation action goes. Really for PGB and BAC, we have to look at them in conjunction because so many of those tests overlap between the two samples. So we only had 14 total suspensions out of those 246 labs um, that are accredited in that sample. So only about 6% of labs. And really, there's nothing interesting with this one. Again, it's one of our lighter samples as far as accreditation goes, and this one seemed pretty normal. Thank you for that. Ryan, is there any insights? You're always good with some random and interesting facts. Not today. This one, Not was, today? A breath, this one was a breath of fresh air after the BAC issue. So I, I'm taking this one as a win. I don't blame you there. You did mention that these both are sample rounds that we send out twice a year. And that is one of the reasons why the sample round numbers are so high. They're, you know, in the 270s. Because that means we've sent out... 271 and 272 samples to participants. But John, why do we send out the PGB and BAC samples twice a year when the rest of them are just once a year? So when we started this program, you know, roughly 25 years ago, might even be longer than that, 
the rationale behind it was it was actually an industry push. The industry decided that it was of utmost importance to test these samples twice a year rather than once a year like every other round. Just kind of a recommendation. And, you know, we don't seem to have any issues with it. We've never, I don't believe we've ever been asked to only send them once a year. We get comments when it comes to this sample round, specifically PGB and BAC is the grade of the material. We receive a lot of comments about, you know, this material is way too modified or unmodified, or what are you doing to us with this temperature? You know, this this isn't anything I test in my state or my region. So it, it ends up being, like I said, a very common comment that we get from the laboratories. And we need to try to do our best to make sure that we're sending a variation in material. You know, not that the materials have a lot of variability, but we want to send laboratories, PG-76s, PG-58s, you know, going into the MSCR grades, S's, HVZs. We want, to, we want to make sure that our laboratories are proficient across the board. When the materials come into the laboratory, I just want to make it a point that these samples need to be treated just like anything else. Any other sample that comes into your laboratory, test it like it's one of those samples. It shouldn't be, it shouldn't be quote-unquote special because it's a proficiency sample. I think that there are times where and I think Joe and, and Ryan can even comment when, you know, we're in a laboratory doing assessments. If there's additional pressure put on the staff to try to test it in a, in a quote unquote better or different way, that anxiety causes tension with the technicians and, and may actually make and, and promote errors. You know, when it comes to this, you're, we're talking about continual improvement here. You know, the accreditation program has the rules in place so that if there is an issue, you've got ample time to resolve it and many ways that accreditation can be reinstated. So, you know, we understand the importance of it, but I think there's a moment where participants need to take a step back and recognize that it's an overall process. And this is one of the ways to ensure that the quality is continuing in your lab. So have your technicians just test it like it's anything else. Don't put any extra pressure on them, let them roll and see what happens. And then make the adjustments if you need to. More than likely, the statistics, when you basically, the way our analysis works, one out of every 20 times your lab tests, it's going to be a low rating just because of the nature of stats. So, you know, we don't need to get that out of shape. We don't need to get worked up. Just test it, run it, relax, and see what happens. Not a big deal. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Thank you, John. And I, again, I think it's important for laboratories and especially accredited laboratories to know that the proficiency sample program is just one of the methods to evaluate competency you know, in your laboratory. So it is a continual improvement kind of thing. And I think it was in our last discussion on soils that it was like, if you just submit data, you're probably okay. Like just don't, don't not submit data for it. So good advice, John, of just like treat it like any other sample. And it, it may be different results than you're expecting because you're not familiar with that material, but everyone's getting a similar sample. So the results should be similar. I'll add two caveats to treat it as any other sample. One, read the instructions first. There might be something there where it's just not something you do, but it's what we want you to do. Second, because uh, I've heard, I've gotten calls on this and had people ask about this. These are not state methods. Don't run your state method. You'll get bad scores. Those are good suggestions. Thank you for those reminders. Joe, do you have any tips? One of my insights, especially recently, not with PAGB or BAC, but with um, soil is the big one. Keep in mind that we we change the sample program sometimes and we add tests to them. Um, if 
whether uh, our DOTs want to see the data. Uh, sometimes we use we get requests from other agencies like ASTM for our data to be used for precision and bias statements, also for the ASTRO test standards. So we add test standards and we always notify our accredited laboratories that, hey, you know, this standard you're accredited for is being included in this sample. So definitely pay attention to that as well. Sometimes there will be additional tests in there. And as Ryan said, read the instructions, make sure you're looking at, oh, they added this test. Are we accredited for that? Okay, we need to submit data for that now. That's not specifically to PGB or BAC. Soil is the big one that we've added a few things to over the past couple of years, but it's just something to keep in mind. So I know I've said to people and customers numerous times that you only need to submit data for tests that you're accredited for, for proficiency samples. Is there harm on for the laboratory or for the program in general if laboratories submit data for all of the tests, even if they're ones that they're not accredited for? Yeah, it's entirely up to the laboratory. I mean, the whole program, you know, the emphasis is is essentially a good faith effort that you're going to put your best foot forward to conduct the testing appropriately in accordance with the standards. So whether your laboratory is accredited or not accredited for a specific test method, if you want to try and test, go ahead. There's no reason you shouldn't. You should never feel obligated to only test what you're accredited for, but nor should you feel obligated to test everything. It's up to you. You know, it's up to the participants. We have some laboratories who, you know, may be on the cusp of looking at a new project and they may need another test method and, you know, hey, let's go check our competency. You know, it might be some test method they not necessarily haven't ever done yet, but maybe they haven't done it for five years or, or 10 years because of, a, there, you know, there were no contracts out there that required a test method. Well, now all of a sudden there's a bid coming up and you can check to see how you're proficient your technician is. Go ahead and run it. It's not a big deal. I mean, the way that our analysis works uh, and the the invalid and outlier routine, if the data is really bad, it's not going to be included in the analysis. So it won't matter. If anybody wants to take a shot, go for it. And there's this actually brings up a really good comment too that we receive all the time. And the the comment is that are the un, the laboratories who are not accredited, are they causing the bias and then making my result poor? And that's probably our second or third most most substantial comment that we get. And I think the answer to that is no. Like I said, one, the analysis will help to weed out any of those issues. But two, a majority of these other laboratories who are not ASHTO accredited are accredited in some other capacity, whether it be for something like uh, you know the Army Corps or through another North American accreditation body. Even a lot of our other international participants abroad are accredited by a major accreditor, and they still need to perform the test in accordance with ASHTO or ASTM. And they have to receive satisfactory ratings. So I, I don't believe there's any nefarious action going on there where people are intentionally trying to skew the data. At least I hope not. <laughs> well, and you describe some safeguards to prevent in the analysis process to, you know, safeguard against any of that skewing. So I think that's good insights. Yeah, we try to check for collusion with every single line item for every single round. We will look for clustering of data. And if a cluster appears to be a lot of laboratories from the same area of the state or country or company. We kind of really hone in on that and take a deeper look and investigate prior to uh, to making any kind of you know, decision. And then if we see something that appears to be a little 
Suspect will notify the accreditation program to take additional in, uh, steps for investigation. Oh, that's good to know too. Joe, on the accreditation side, John was just kind of talking about like, yeah, if you can run the tests and submit data for it, even if you're just thinking about it or just seeing how you do, will that impact the accreditation of a laboratory who has maybe submitted data for a test that they are not accredited for currently, or they weren't accredited for in the last two years, but they submitted data anyway, but now they want to get accredited? Does the accreditation program look at that data or is it a clean slate from it? Like, what's that process like? It is a clean slate. The only thing that we look at if they're seeking accreditation for a new method or new methods is that they're enrolled in the appropriate proficiency sample program. If they've been submitting data and it's some low ratings, but they've never been accredited for that test before, we will not deny their accreditation based on that. It's not until a laboratory is accredited for a test that we start including their data in our accreditation review of of their ratings, uh, which again is every two is every two years basically. Um, a good example of that is hydrometer. Uh, a lot of labs are previously familiar with T88 and D422. D422 is a withdrawn standard now and has been replaced with D7928. Both of those are included in the soil proficiency sample program. Um, some labs are just starting to pick up on D7928 and are submitting data, data even though they're not accredited. And we don't take a look at that when they seek accreditation for that new standard. That might be helpful too for labs to know that's not going to hurt their future chances of getting accredited. Correct. Let's circle back to BAC and PGB samples. Are there any upcoming changes to the samples or the tests included in those sample rounds, John, that our listeners can keep an eye out for? I don't believe so, Kim. I think the only thing that we we have been considering this for a while, and that's to eliminate some of those properties on the multiple stress creep and recovery test. It's just been a an interesting decade, <laughs> decade and a half of testing, you know, having having data and analyzing data for those materials. You know, we're, we're trying to get to the bottom of why we see a, a bimodal distribution or even a trimodal distribution. We keep investigating the DSR manufacturers and checking things like software. And I just looked at it this morning in a little bit of a preparation for this. You know, we had roughly 240 labs submit data. And out of those roughly 240, I found over 20 different versions of software. So it's really, really hard to pinpoint where any bias would have come from when you have that many versions of software in only you know, roughly 250 labs. So <laughs> you're seeing a 10% variation in software use alone just when it comes to those participants. So a little bit challenging to try to, to pinpoint the exact cause of the, the bimodal distribution. But I think we're at a point now, and if I remember correctly, Ryan, you can either support or reject my claim on this, but we talked to the uh, our oversight group and we had discussed removing this from the, the scheme yep. for, for the following years. One other thing that I think we might look at is for the bending beam rheometer uh, line items 22 through 27 in this report, we had been asked to evaluate the trials of beams as well. So the accreditation program only looks at the average values of the beams, but we were suggested to collect the data for beam one and beam two in the pair 
so this is this would be two beams per side. So two beams per sample 171 and two beams for sample 172, just to collect that data and see if there is any major variation. But I think now that after having this in for five or six years, we are not seeing any suspect or any potential variation between the, the two individual tests in, in the side of the pair. So I think we can probably cut out trial one and trial two uh, and just allow the laboratories to still do that you know, the testing in accordance with the standard to test two beams and report it, but then just simply report the average and it'll take four line items away from this analysis. I haven't looked at the data sheets for many samples in a long time. So what other kind of information are you asking and what is that used for? All kinds of stuff. Oh my gosh. Uh, let's pull up a data sheet and let's run down that. So for, for PGB, we're asking for for the rolling thin film oven, we're looking for elevation above sea level, the barometric pressure time of testing, the airflow uh, rate exiting the air jet, testing time in the oven. For MSCR, we're looking for the DSR manufacturer, the DSR model, and the MSCR software version. For the PAV, we're looking for PAV manufacturer, PAV model, and whether or not the residue was degassed. And for bending beam rheometer, we're looking for what type of mold. So that's that's the rundown for that, at least. Just an array of things we ask for. Equipment manufacturer, different types of compaction effort, oven temperatures, thermometer used, elevation, barometric pressure, and all of that data. It's basically stored right now, but it's stored for the purpose of when we attend an ASTM committee meeting or the AASHTO subcommittee or committee meeting on materials and pavements. If there is an entity uh, in that group who comes up to us and says, hey, we need some data on this information, or can you add this to a sample round to collect some data? You know, go ahead and throw it in there and then send us the analyzed data and we'll look at evaluation of a, of a specific method. And that's optional, right? There's no requirement that laboratories submit information for those optional things, correct? No. Um, and actually, I was going to ask about that whenever, John, you were talking about the MSC software. Um, how many people actually responded with their information? I believe almost 200 laboratories submitted the software information. So quite a bit of laboratories are very, are forthcoming with that, but it, that's what we need to, you know, we need that additional information to help us provide information to the states and ASTM to make revisions to the standards and, and pull in those precision estimates to make the standards more repeatable and more reproducible between between facilities. Even though it is optional to submit that data, it is really helpful for the industry at large and to improve the test methods when laboratories submit all of the information that they can. That's yeah. correct. Anything else that we missed or any other questions that I should have asked and didn't know to ask? No, I don't think so, Kim. I think this one went uh, went really well. We had, had two, uh, two rounds, you know, PGB obviously was was a normal round, and we saw some anomalies with BAC, but I believe that we did our best to um, you know adjust and and course correct on our end and make sure that there was no impact on any of the laboratory's accreditation. You know, one thing I I think I'd like to to do here while we have a few minutes left is just uh, kind of add a little reminder to uh, the participants who are listening about what rounds we've got out right now and what's closing. Um, so right now we've got the Marshall Mixed Design around 79 and 80. That's out um, and it's going to close on July 20th. We have our three uh, Veeam designs, California Needing Compaction, Colorado Compaction, and Texas Compaction. All three of those rounds also close on July 20th. 
And then we've got our last mixture design sample, the gyratory round 55 and 56, and that closes on July 27th. So kind of a, a little monthly or month out reminder for all the participants that we've got uh, some of those closing out. Yeah, and envisioning a very busy July for you, John. Yes. Yeah, Ryan and I will be extremely busy for the last two days before we go on vacation. <laughs> so I like it. Well, Ryan, John, and Joe, thank you for joining us for another PSP Insights episode. Yeah, Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Ashto Resource Q&A. If you'd like to be a guest or just submit a question, send us an email at podcast at ashtoresource.org or call Brian at 240-436-4820. For other news and related content, check out Ashto Resource's social media accounts or go to ashtoresource.org.